Welcome to Sidactic Residency Edition. I am Dr. O, and this episode is a continuation of my series on signs of catatonia. Today, I'll discuss the remaining hyperactive or excited signs of catatonia, including echolalia, echopraxia, and agitation. If you're encountering this episode without listening to the whole series on catatonia, I suggest that you back up to episode 11 and start from there. In previous episodes, I've discussed the hypoactive or retarded signs, including stupor, mutism, negativism, grimacing, posturing, and catalepsy, and other hyperactive or excited signs, including mannerisms and stereotypy. All of the hyperactive signs share the common feature that the patient is doing something odd, repetitive, or unexpected. Let's start this episode with the echo phenomenon. Phenomenon. In echopraxia, the patient repeats an action that the examiner performs without instructions to do so. This may seem similar to stereotypies, which are performances of purposeless actions, but in stereotypies, patient initiates the action without any prompting. In echopraxia, the key is the echo. Praxia comes from the Greek term meaning to act. Echopraxia is basically to act something out that you just saw someone else do. There seems to be an involuntary nature to the action, like it just occurs automatically. There are some cool proposed neurological mechanisms that involve mirror neurons, like communication between occipital lobes and the inferior frontal cortex, supplementary and premotor cortices. There's a tendency for our brain to just immediately plan out the actions that we see other people doing, uh, because this might help us to maybe understand the intended action's meaning or maybe predict what will happen next. Somehow, in echopraxia, there's either a lack of inhibition or an excess of excitement that results in the immediate performance of an action someone just saw. A paper by Pridmore et al. in 2008 in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry, entitled Echopraxia and Schizophrenia, Possible Mechanisms, proposes that in echopraxia there's some dysfunction in that mirror neuron system, and its communication with the inferior frontal gyrus, premotor cortex, and the anterior cingulate cortex, as well as the motor cortex. The normal inhibitory mechanisms break down and observed actions are initiated automatically. Testing for echopraxia in practice is a little more tricky than I had originally imagined. Probably the most common way that practitioners test for echopraxia is by making an exaggerated movement to scratch their own head or rest their hand on their head and observe to see if the patient does the same thing. Often, I go into a patient's room and I ask them to perform some action as a way to test their motor function. To help, I demonstrate what they're supposed to do. If I have, for example, just demonstrated an action to a patient and then asked them to repeat it, 
and then I do something else, like scratch my head and the patient does that too, I've confused the picture. I wouldn't count that as clear echopraxia. There needs to be an unambiguous lack of prompting. Also, echopraxia that fulfills some useful social purpose is not pathological. If you wave back automatically after someone waves at you, this does not count as echopraxia. If you cross your legs and the patient does the same, this is also not clearly echopraxia. But if you try uncrossing and crossing them again just to see if the patient continues to repeat the action, and they do, then this is more likely pathological. One part of the inferior frontal gyrus is Broca's area, which helps you to plan out movements necessary to produce speech. Echolalia, or reproduced speech, could involve dysfunction in the same mirror neuron system as echopraxia, but instead of involving motor functions of like the torso and the limbs, it involves motor functions of the mouth and vocal cords. Echolalia is the most common of the echo phenomenon. Phenomenon. Echolalia is not necessarily pathological. It is pervasive among infants and toddlers, and helps humans and non-human animals to learn language. It's also common among various other psychiatric disorders, including autism spectrum disorders, Tourette's, major neurocognitive disorders, um, patients who are post-stroke or had head injuries, delirious patients, and also patients with some types of aphasia, or even after epileptic seizures. Echolalia is built in to human development, and after the first couple years of life, we become better at not simply repeating everything we hear, except in the case of my son who incessantly repeats every curse I have ever uttered. Dysfunction in our ability to inhibit what appears to be a developmental default state of our brains likely plays a role in echolalia. Echolalia is also not necessarily immediate. That means like occurring immediately after you said something. If you say something to your patient like, I'm Dr. O'Leary, and then when you leave the room, you hear them start to repeat, I'm Dr. O'Leary, I'm Dr. O'Leary, I'm Dr. O'Leary. This is also echolalia. The impression of your speech on their mind remained and is being repeated and imitated. I have saved the best for last in my discussion of catatonia. Agitation. I have a guttural reaction to the word agitation. You might say it agitates me. I have a personal vendetta against it, but I also find myself using it on an almost daily basis. The word Agitation is used in such a wide variety of contexts to describe an almost infinitely broad set of actions in patients that I feel like it should be banned in the medical record. If someone's a little irritated at having to wait 
two hours to be taken to the bathroom, they get described as being agitated. If they're throwing their furniture across the room, they get described as being agitated. If they decline medication, they get described as being agitated. Describing a patient as agitated also has an effect on how they're treated by physicians and nursing staff, so it's not a benign descriptor. Agitated patients are avoided, potentially neglected, frequently sedated, and sometimes physically restrained. When writing agitation as an indication for the heavy-duty PRN medications that we give, think twice about what you're doing and maybe try to use other words like violence or attempted elopement and make sure that catatonia is not high on your differential when you write those words. Because giving olanzapine, haloperidol, or chlorpromazine to a catatonic patient is a mistake. I know you don't have time for all of my righteous indignation, so I'm going to move on to what agitation means as a diagnostic sign in catatonia. Excited catatonia has also been called delirious mania, and it is common in psychotic or manic patients. Agitation is one of the core features of excited catatonia, but in order to associate agitation clearly with catatonia, you need to establish a few things to differentiate it from the other things that might cause or be called agitation. What agitation is, by definition, is unclear. Catatonic agitation seems to be an increase in spontaneous, unprovoked motor activity that's internally motivated and also appears in some degree to be involuntary, or at least outside of the patient's current ability to control. It may or may not seem to have a purpose, like trying to escape or evade capture. You don't need to know exactly what's causing the patient to be agitated, but you need to rule out that it's a product of their environment or some noxious stimulus that they're trying to avoid. Psychosis and paranoid delusions can result in aggressive or violent or recurrent agitation. Now imagine the case where you started a patient on an antipsychotic, and they seem to be getting worse, frequently attacking nurses, frantically pacing the halls, running at the entrance and throwing themselves like a flesh missile at the doors. Or you have a manic patient pacing the halls, jumping on furniture, and singing the national anthem. You give IM haloperidol, and they have a paradoxical worsening of their behaviors. Worsening with antipsychotics is a pretty reliable sign that the agitation is more catatonic and not really psychotic. Because my brain likes to go to strange places... I am imagining the case where I'm evaluating a patient who I also suspect may be catatonic. I observe echolalia, what I believe to be some negativism, they aren't following my instructions, and apparent stereotypy, they're running around on tiptoes, waving their hands. 
And let's just add in agitation. They spontaneously attack another patient by punching them in the face. Do I diagnose catatonia? Or do I evaluate whether this patient has autism? Patients with autism spectrum disorder may also have catatonia, but a broad application of the signs of catatonia without a high prior probability that the condition actually exists can result in a false diagnosis despite technically meeting criteria. With this in mind, I want to introduce the next and last episode in this series on catatonia, which will be a discussion of the Bush-Francis Catatonia Rating Scale, which is probably the most commonly used tool we have for diagnosis and rating the severity of catatonia. I am Dr. O, and this has been an episode of Sidactic Residency.